Welcome to Activate Church Podcast and thanks for listening. We hope this message helps you and we pray that God speaks to you through this week's message. You know, when we come to church and we meet like this, you know, we can come expecting something or we can come and just spectate. My encouragement to you tonight is let's come expecting God to do something in our midst and release something in our life and open our hearts wider and and enlarge our space and that we would leave here ready to go into this week running. Amen. We're certainly ready to do that. My husband and I, we do a lot of work in schools, which Tristan has already spoken on. For 16 years, I've been speaking in schools in WA, and we bring a Just Say No to Drugs message. And we also do family seminars. And over the last 10 years or so, I've been running uh, personal development programs and uh, mentoring programs and Bible studies in our state maximum security women's prison. And, you know, when I look around in our community and I look at our nation and I listen to stories around the world and I watch families break down and young people become addicted to drugs and the rate of divorce and and, and suicide and depression and, and all these things that are happening so rapidly, I can understand in the Bible when Jesus said that the thief would come to kill and steal and destroy. But Jesus came to give life and life abundantly. And our message, whether we're in schools or whether we're in prisons or whether we're working with people in the community is that one thing, is there is something greater for your life than your here and now, that God has a plan and a purpose. And my work is very much motivated by my own personal story. And in this picture here, I was 21 years old. I was a heroin addict, I was on methadone, I would steal most days to support my drug habit. I had a boyfriend who was also a drug addict and and he would uh, hit me and push me around and call me names. And and in this picture here, my mum and dad didn't know what to do with me anymore and they used to think, well, maybe if we just ignore the problem, maybe the problem's just going to go away. But soon after this picture here, I was charged by the police And I knew I had to make some serious choices in my life. And I thank God every day that he found me in my state that I was in and he rescued me and put my feet upon the rock and gave me my second chance. And in my deepest, darkest, loneliest, most isolated moments, I said a very simple prayer to myself. God, if you give me my life back, then I will do whatever you ask me to do. If you give me my life back, I will go out and I will help other people. And you know, I've never gone back on that word. Before I share my message with you tonight, I have brought a couple of my resources. So if you would like to read more about my story, that's in Golden Haze. Today we're in our sixth print of that and we have it in over 650 Australian schools. My second book is called Under Your Influence and this is for families who are looking for some strategies of knowing how to parent their teenagers into a drug and alcohol problem free life. So whether the book is for you or whether it's somebody that God's laid upon your heart, grab it tonight and pass it on so that we can get this message far and wide, the message of Jesus and the message of freedom. 
You know, when I think about my um, story and we, and we think about our testimonies, testimonies are very powerful tools because when we share a story about what God has done in our life, And when we think about stories of faith and somebody stands up here and says, you know, this is what God did for me. You know, our faith levels go from here up to here. Because our testimonies show that God is alive, He is active, He is relevant, He is real and He is ready to move in every situation. Our testimonies show the power of God. That with every obstacle we face, there is an opportunity for God to break through. With every adversity we're walking through, God is at the other end saying, keep going. That our misery will turn into a ministry. That our tests will turn into testimonies. That God is a God of more than enough and He hasn't called you just to survive. He's called you to overcome. Because when you overcome, you bring other people with you. And that's why Romans 8.28 says that God works all things out for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You know, when I think about my work with prisoners and, and the work that we're doing today, my life was very much interrupted about 10 years ago. When at the time I was married and I had two daughters under two, And I was standing in the kitchen doing the dishes and my phone rang. And as I picked up the phone, there was a lady on the other end of the phone saying, can I speak to Jade Lewis? And I said, well, it's Jade Lewis here. And she said, well, who are you? And I said, well, who are you? And she said, well, listen, I'm a volunteer at the women's, um, at the state maximum security women's prison. She said, I want to know if you can actually come in and speak to these women. Some of them have been reading your book, Golden Haze, and they're so inspired and feel very motivated to change their lives. And they want to know, can you give up a Saturday and come in? And when I watched my two daughters under two wiping Vegemite up and down my lounge room wall, I said, you know what, thank you, but no thank you. I said, it's not a very convenient time in my life at the moment. Who knows when God calls us, it's never convenient. Amen. I said, you know, I've got two children under two. My husband's in full-time ministry. I said, you know, I'm a very busy person. I said, but listen, here's a message that I want you to pass on to the women, that I wish them all the best. And if they want to meet me, that they can find me at my local church, that they can come to a service. And at the end, I'll have a cup of coffee with them. I said, thank you very much. And I hung up the phone. And then my husband came home from work. He says, how's your day? And I said, yeah, it's pretty good. I said, but you never guess who called today. He's like, who? I'm like the state women's prison. He's like, no way. What did they want? I'm like, well, they wanted to know if I could come in on a Saturday and meet some women who've been reading Golden Haze. And he said, no way. What did you say? I'm like, no way. Anywhere but the women's prison. Anywhere but the women's prison. And then my husband began to sat me down. And began to challenge me like every good husband does. Amen. And he began to say to me, he said, well, when you were like these women, considered the very loneliest and the, the last and the lost, people in society that are unlovely, when you were like one of those women, somebody stopped to help you. Somebody inconvenienced themselves and helped you find your second chance. He said, don't you think it's obvious what you should be doing with your life? You know, when I think about my life, it wasn't always hard. 
You know, I grew up in a family where I've got a sister who's nearly two years older than I and my dad was always a big believer in sitting my sister and I down and he'd often talk to us girls about having a dream for our life. And he would say to us, girls, find something that you love to do and try your best at it. And the thing that I used to love to do from a very young age was that I used to love to run. And so I would go off to school and I would daydream outside the window, picturing myself up there on the number one podium, taking a gold medal for my country. I was more interested in racing my friends at lunchtime than I ever was at studying at school. That my parents thought that it would be a very good idea to enrol me into the local little athletic club where I began to compete on the weekends and, and train through the weekdays. And through my sport at a very young age, I started to learn some of the earliest disciplines in life. I started to understand that in life there is no such word as can't. It's called don't want to. I started to learn through my sports that woulda, coulda, shoulda was never going to help me when I got on the starting line to run a race. If I knew I hadn't put in the training, then I wasn't going to expect a result. And I started to understand that the only place that success is found before work is in the dictionary. That you are going to have to work very hard to achieve and do something well. So I became very focused from a very young age. And by the time I was 12, I won my first state medal in the 800 metres. And by the time I was 14 years old, I was chosen to race in the WA state team competing in Singapore. I was a 4'8 and 1500 metre runner. I went over to Singapore and won a gold and silver medal. And that year I won lots of awards for my sporting achievements. And then I turned 15. And because I kept my eye on my goal and where I was going at 15, I was chosen to race in the state team going to Malaysia. I went to Malaysia and I went, won a medal also. But it was probably when I was 15 that my life took this 180 degree turn. And when I was coming back from Malaysia, little athletics as I had known it had now finished, which meant that we all had to go up to senior athletics or go off and try another sport. And at 15, to be honest with you, I think I was starting to burn out from my sport. Having to win all the time and win the medals and be first and the pressure of training and then the pressure of competing and the pressure of school. That at 15, when I got back, I said to my parents and my coach, I need a year off. I'm not coping. So my parents decided, okay, you can have a year off and, and that meant that they got to have a break because they were the parents where everyone's kids slept at their house and they were the coach and the club manager. So me having a break meant that they were having a break. So we all thought that having a break would be the right thing to do. You know, giving up my sports wasn't the wrong thing to do. But giving up my sports began to highlight a massive need and a massive gap in my teenage life that I actually started to understand that a lot of my identity at 15 was based on what I did, that I never knew who I was. So when I gave up what I did, I was left with me. Well, who am I? And what's my purpose? And where do I belong? And unfortunately, I started to lose contact with my athletic friends and I started to have this overwhelming need to want to fit in with my friends from school. Now, there was nothing wrong with my friends from school. We went to a private school and most of them came from good homes. But the friends that I started to drift towards at my school 
with those that were going off to parties, drinking alcohol, smoking marijuana, smoking cigarettes. And I believe I started to drift towards that group because the Bible says very clearly in Proverbs that where the blind lead the blind, where the blind lead the blind, they both will fall into the ditch. These were young people without purpose, without promise, without directions, without identity. Where were the young people in my school that were pointing us to youth group, that were pointing us to Jesus, that we could actually follow into the kingdom? I believe that there's going to be an unleashing in our younger generation today to not be intimidated by the message of Jesus and delivering it to the dark world, but to actually bring it to young people like me. So at 15, we're drifting, we're partying. But, but soon enough, I ended up at a rave party. Rave parties are all-night dance parties where young people go and dress up and hang out with all their friends. But most people who go to these rave parties will go there to take illegal drugs. You know, the enemy has a counterfeit for everything. You know, where I was searching really for a high and a knowing of, of who I was in Christ, the enemy was actually putting all these other things in front of me that fascinated and drew me in and started to give me these fake highs when I took ecstasy and LSD. And just before my 16th birthday, I met my first boyfriend who was a lot more streetwise than me. And he had family who were in and out of prison and, and he flattered me with all these empty words. That he began to fill my love tank where no one else was. And then just before my 16th birthday, he led me into a filthy old, dirty, run-down bathroom and pulled out a needle full of drugs. And, I, and, and that's when I... And, and pulled out a needle full of drugs and asked me if I wanted to use it. And that's when I began the downward spiral into drugs and crime and violence. I was 15 years old when I lost my innocence to that world. You know, drugs and deception go hand in hand. And the more that I started to believe the lie that drugs could be the answer to my fun and my pain and my problem and my depression and my fitting in, the more that I started to use it more and more and more. But the thing about drugs is every time I got high, it just didn't seem enough. I wanted more and more and more. And by the time I was 18, I became a heroin addict. And I remember actually waking up one morning thinking to myself, I've got to get out of here. I wasn't living at home and, and I, I, my parents used to come over and say, come and see a social worker, come and see a counsellor. We're trying to get you some help. But really, nothing was going to change until I got out of there. You know, I remember being 18 and realising I couldn't get off drugs and my only alternative was to go on methadone. And once you go on methadone, you register with all these other drug addicts and line up every day and take your bit of medicine. Methadone didn't fix my problems. If anything, it made it worse. But you know the thing with the enemy is that he's not going to just come in and rip off my life, but he went after my family as well. And my family became very involved. And when my dad found out that this guy was pushing me around and punching me and hurting me, my dad went out and found him and got him and punched him and hurt him really badly. And then they came back to my parents' house and, and about three or four o'clock in the morning, a few nights later, they threw big slabs of concrete pavement cement through my mum and dad's bedroom window in the middle of the night. 
My dad got up out of bed when there was glass all over my mum and chased these guys across the park. They got restraining orders and police protection. And my dad said to me, if you stay with these guys, he said, There's, you're not coming back into this family. That I stooped so low as a drug addict that I went back with these guys and lost contact with my family because they had what I thought I wanted, which was the drugs. You know, it wasn't just about me, mum and dad. What about my sister? My sister who was actually sitting there on the sidelines watching all this unfold in my family home. She'd come home from school and she'd come home from work and behind our closed doors, it was like war zone. My parents are fighting, the principal's ringing up, the police are ringing up and I've been beaten up again. She's walked in, mum's found bongs, mum's found needles, mum's found this. And I often believe that those siblings sitting on the sidelines spectating what's going on in the family need more support sometimes than what the drug addict needs because often they become the silent sufferer. So she would come in and she'd try to encourage my mum and bring her flowers and do all of this but nothing seemed enough and my sister got so distressed with what was going on and she bottled it up and up and up and up and the saddest thing in her story, she didn't realise that there were people out there that she could have spoken to. Who is it in your world that you need to ask, hey, are you all right? Do you want to go for a coffee? Because here she was thinking, I just can't say anything. My family's falling apart. I'm stressed out. I'm embarrassed. I can't believe what's happening. And yet she didn't know there was someone like the local church that she could speak to. She was 19 when it took one of my nice new friends to come into my family home and give her heroin for the first time and she became a heroin addict too. So there was two of us out there on the street stealing, dealing, ripping people off. If it wasn't one in trouble with the police, it was another. If it wasn't one going to rehab, it was another. And by the time I was about 21 and a half, I believe I started losing hope. My mum came out to find me. My mum worked in a doctor's surgery and my dad owned a business. They know what it's like to walk around their local community knowing that people are pointing at their daughters. It's a drug addicts. You know those two? They're on drugs. They didn't now remember our names. They knew us for what we had done. And when your identity is based on what you do and not who you are, every time you fail and every time you make a mistake, you just start to feel worse and worse and worse about yourself. I mean, look at this picture. The question wasn't, you know, how come you were like this? The question was, why did I let people treat me like that? Where was my boundaries? Where was my respect? My mum came out and found me and she said, I just want you to come home. She says, I don't know what the answer is, but you need to get away from this guy. It was a very dangerous situation and a very volatile situation. She got me away from him. We got restraining orders and put all those things in place. But I still had a raging heroin addiction. So I moved home and it was like ice. No one was talking. Until Mother's Day that year, the police decided they were going to show up when all my family were over and eventually I was charged. I went to the police station with my dad and as we sat down at the, at the table and they read out all the charges, my dad leant over the table and he said to me, if you have done everything that these officers have said you have done, 
I'm not helping you. He said, if you want to be such a big girl and run with these guys, he said, then you learn to stand up and take the consequences. And as much as I hated my dad for doing that, what my dad was trying to do is not make me comfortable in my dysfunction. Now, that was the hardest thing I think a parent could do. But my dad was about to teach me one of the most important lessons that I wish I had learned as a teenager, that with every choice we make, there is a consequence. That I stood up in the court and as I stood there, I had legal aid who was reading my name out. Then she began to share my story. She's a heroin addict, violence, this boyfriend and she steals and she's on methadone and this magistrate stops this woman. And if there was a time that I needed the grace of God the most in my life, it was then. And I started to remember different conversations I had with people who had come across my path since I was 18. And the first one was this social worker where I used to have to go and see her once a week for one hour up to a year. And as I sat down with her, I used to share my problems with her all the time. And when I used to leave her, I always felt good. I felt peaceful. I felt hope. I didn't realise until many years later when she began to find me and track me down and got my number and she said, Jade, I can't believe it. I saw you in the newspaper. You got your life back together. I said, Trish, I've always wanted to find you again. I said, you wouldn't believe it. Today, I'm a Christian. She said, I knew it. She said, I'm a Christian too. And she said, even though I couldn't share my faith in my social worker government department role, She said, what I used to do is go back to my church and get the women there and just start to stand in the gap and pray and believe God and prophesy and declare over your life that there is freedom. This woman was Acts 2 at its best to go and preach the gospel and not say one word. There was something in this woman that every time she spoke, it was like rivers of living water. I didn't know what it was. But her prayers began to change my destiny. Who of you in here today is working in a role like that? I encourage you, get creative and start praying for your workplace. God is looking and He sees and He requires you to stand in the gap for this generation. Number two was this girl that I used to work with. She used to stalk me down into my office. She'd say, excuse me are you on drugs? And I'd be like, oh my gosh, no. She goes, I just, because I want to tell you a story. She says, when I was 18, I was a heroin addict. And she said, one day I went to church to pick up a food hamper. There was a man in church that night that was telling everyone about Jesus. She said, I couldn't believe it. But of all the people, my brother was up the front on his knees and people had their hands laid upon him. She goes, I just didn't know what happened, but I felt compelled to join him on the altar. She said, I gave my heart to Jesus that night and it was like the chains of addiction broke off my life. And she said, and I got, I became born again and I was set free in the name of Jesus. And she said, every week now, we do home group at my church. We go to someone's house and we sing songs to Jesus and we read the Bible. We have hot chocolate and eat Tim Tams. She said, this week is bring a friend week want to be my friend. I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to be your friend today. 
I said, when we meet in houses, we do lots of different things, but not sing songs to Jesus. But here is this one woman who used to come into my space And as much as I used to outwardly reject her and mock her and put her down, that said more about me because she was getting closer than I liked. She, she, that was more about me because she used to get into my space and not be intimidated by my words and, and by my outward expression. Because whose voice do you think that I used to hear inside my head? at three and four o'clock in the morning when my dealer had turned his phone off and I couldn't get drugs than this girl. You know, if God can do it for me, He can do it for you. Three was a boy that I used to catch a bus with. He used to ask me every week, do you want to come to church? Do you want to come to young adults? And even though I said, no, 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 He showed me that Jesus was still relevant to my generation then. That when I stood in the courtroom, if I needed the grace of God the most, it was then. But how could I call upon the name of Jesus if nobody had told me about Him? This magistrate said, well, what are you going to do about your problem? I said, well, I want to go to rehab. That's not the truth. I've never met a drug addict who wants to go to rehab. He goes, which one? I said, Teen Challenge. It's eight hours out of Perth. It's away from addicts and dealers and, and my family. And I can go down there and stay. He goes, good, you can go. But if we see you up here in Perth, no more chances. That it was like God moved. Bang, bang, bang. I was cold turkey off methadone and heroin on that plane and off the plane, leaving my dad at the airport, bawling his eyes out to go find my sister. But when I arrived in this program, All these girls that were there began to testify about what Jesus had done in their life. But one in particular who is still my best friend, she lives in Melbourne today. We went through rehab together. She spoke the five most important words a Christian can speak to anyone. Can I pray for you? Because what's the worst they can say? No. Well, who cares? At least you tried. (laughs) I remember going to my room that night. And I remember crying out to Jesus because I was so full of shame that I don't know that I would have just did it so publicly. And that's the beautiful thing about God is He meets us where we're at. And in my brokenness, He began to just surround my room with His presence. And I know without a shadow of doubt, that night the Holy Spirit came into my heart. And the first witness was, is that my anxiety, which I struggled with since the time I was seven years old, lifted and I didn't have anxiety from that point. That I still had to walk out the pain of of withdrawal and methadone, but I had a peace in my heart that everything was going to be okay. How in a situation would somebody know that? Then if God is breathing into your dysfunction and your brokenness, hope and joy and peace and forgiveness. And He told me, come and get to know me. Because it's not about religion, people. We need to get rid of that idea because that's rules, right? Cans and can'ts. And that's what causes us to want to do the wrong thing. It's about relationship. 
And if you're struggling in an area tonight, we're going to give you that opportunity in just a moment where Jesus says, come, come into the arms of the Father and let Him love on you. And and through that relationship, things will begin to change. When you stand in the presence of God, what has held you back for 10 or 15 years is gone in the name of Jesus. That as I began to come into the presence of God, I started to, my heart started to change. My mind started to change. That I started to desire the things of God now instead of the things of the world. And I started to have this desire, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. That's a radical prayer. And I believe some of you, you're going to pray that tonight. Break my heart for what breaks yours. We need to have vision because so many of us have sight but no vision. Where God is wanting you to actually ask Him to show you what He wants you to do with your life. Because vision inspires, it gathers, it causes other people to follow. But vision in a state of chaos brings order. That God started to show me that He was going to get me to go and speak but I had to overcome my fear of public speaking. You know, people would rather die before they public speak. That I overca- as I overcame my biggest fear, I started to overcome many other fears in my life. I began to share my story. I started to meet my husband. And then we went on to have children. We started to go and minister to young people. We were youth pastors, young adult pastors, home group leaders. You know, when you're starting a ministry, you're everything. You're being there, done that. And God just started to increase and increase and increase. And the day I took that phone call, this is where I'm going to close tonight, was a day that interrupted the rest of my life. Because as much as I ran from that darkness, because it scared me, I didn't know it. But God was calling me to run in the darkness. And when you do, you begin to run in to a place where God will meet you with His grace. There's no fear in perfect love. That when I began to step into that dark place, the doors began to open. And and as I went into that prison, God started to break my heart for these women. Because we can feel sorry for them, but if we're compassionate, it will cause us to move the Holy Spirit challenged me and He said, will you hear their cries? Will you hear their children's cries? Will you meet their need? He said, and you've got a decision to make because if you say, no, that's fine, I will raise someone else up to do it because we're not irreplaceable. He said, but on the day of judgment, when you're standing in front of me and I ask you, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do when that person came into your life? What did you do when you walked past that homeless person? What did you do when you saw a need and you ignored it? And I knew then that I had to follow that call. And since then, it has been amazing. We've climbed many mountains and we've walked through some of the deepest valleys with these girls. But in a quick snapshot today, we've had over a thousand enrolments of girls into our programs in the prison. Just two weeks ago, every single one of the girls in our class gave their heart to Je- gave their hearts to Jesus. We've got girls rising up and they're testifying and they're going back to their own families are being restored and the v- the vision is being fulfilled. 
Last Friday, just gone, we held a women's conference in there where 200 prisoners came to this conference. That is usually not allowed. But we've been praying for these girls and teaching them about uncommon favour and unusual miracles. We're seeing girls getting proceeds of crime, houses being given back to them, that their parole is being released to them, that their children are given back to them. And that if I'm teaching that and getting the results in our women, then God is starting to pour it on our life. We're bringing prisoners back into a prison to share their testimonies. That's usually not allowed. But there's a rhythm and there's a grace to do this. And the adventure is so amazing. God hasn't called us to be comfortable, but He's called us to comfort those around us. Can I pray for you tonight? And I feel very strong on my heart to pray for three groups of people tonight. The first group of people in here tonight have never come into a relationship with Jesus. And you're sitting there tonight and you're going, wow, this man, Jesus, he sounds amazing. He can forgive and set you free and give you dreams and and call you blessed. Tonight, there's an opportunity for you to reconnect or connect for the first time with God. Perhaps you're sitting in here tonight and your heart is beating and you're going, I think that's me, I think that's me. Yes, it's you. I've sat in your seat before. And God is saying, tonight is your night. It's your turnaround appointment where God wants to turn you and get you going in the right direction. There is a rhythm and a grace that will come upon your life to do what He's called you to do. The second group of those in here, And you're saying to me, you know, I had a vision, but I let it go. I tarried, I gave up, I got tired, I got discouraged, I became cynical and I stopped. You know, when I first got saved, many prophets gave me the word that I would have an Esther anointing, maybe 50 times. And I used to think they were just kind people encouraging me because I didn't understand the prophetic. I mean, I'm junked up in rehab. They're going prophecies. You're going to go to government. I'm like, you're so kind. You know, you're so polite. Do you really think that can happen? You know, a few years ago, our charity actually got selected to be presented to the Queen when she visited Perth. There were five in WA and we were one. And we got up there and I was like, the prophecy that these people gave not only came to fruition in all these other areas, but now literally we're being presented to the Queen. Amen. Last year, we got invited to the Prince's 67th birthday party at this very big posh party in Cottesloe. My children came too. You know, but it took 17 years for that to come to pass. Don't grow weary. God is going to come through. I started to pray and I wanted a husband with, uh, with some kids before I met Tristan, before I had children. And the Lord said, I'll give you that. And I said, Lord, but only if they worship you. You know, at the beginning of this year, two of my children, my daughters actually got baptised and they got up onto the stage. And I had these thoughts and these conversations that I'd had with people over the years that said, are you scared your kids are going to get on drugs because you were on drugs? 
all the time. And I'm like, no, 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 you know, we, we don't operate out of fear. When my children got up and stood in the baptism or my husband was in there, I'm emceeing. And I'm asking my nearly 12-year-old, why are you getting baptised today? She said, because mum, God's been dealing with my heart so much lately. And I want to be an example to my friends and my family. And I love Jesus and I want to be a leader. And bang, and up she comes. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. And then my 10-year-old gets up and she says, because Jesus touched my heart powerfully when I was little. Like she's really old. And she's crying her eyes out. The presence is all over her. And the vision is being fulfilled. Don't grow weary. The third one is those in here and you feel, I've got a call to run into the darkness, but I'm scared. That's okay, we all are. But you run in because that's where grace meets you. And I believe there's a mantle that's going to be released upon some of you to even go into the prisons. And I want to pray that impartation upon you tonight because I believe that we're going to be a generation and a church that's going to run into our communities and run into the dark places and touch the homeless and go into the schools and be bold as a lion towards heaven, towards hell and towards earth. Something is going to be released in the atmosphere tonight. And if you agree with me, I want you to say Amen. We trust you enjoyed this week's message. For any more information about Activate Church, check out our website, www.activatechurch.com or download our app online and have a great week.